Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Growth Through Content Show, a show where we interview content marketing experts and marketing leaders and ask them how they use content marketing as an accelerator for their business growth. I'm Tony from StoryChief, the all-in-one content marketing tool that helps B2B marketers and content agencies to grow their business through content marketing. And today, we're joined by Silicon Valley's SEO hero. He's worked for Atlassian, the company behind Jira and Trello. Daily Motion, the video sharing platform, and G2 Crowd, and is now the director of SEO for Shopify, world's largest e-commerce platform. Welcome, Kevin Indig. How are you doing? Thank you so much. I'm doing really well, and it's fantastic to be on the show. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you for making the time. Um, I introduced you as the uh, Silicon Valley's SEO hero, but now I have to say Chicago's uh, SEO hero. You moved recently? Yeah, that's right. A couple of months ago, I moved. Uh, it was a, was a pretty funny story. I actually made the decision before COVID. Um, and uh, then I kind of got stuck in Germany for a couple of months when COVID broke out, but uh, eventually made it to uh, Chicago. Uh, moved here originally because um, G2 is headquartered in Chicago. All my teams were here and I was just tired to fly back and forth every month. And then, you know, things developed as, as everybody know. And uh, now I'm here, but uh, I don't have regrets. Yeah, so um, you're leaving uh, Silicon Valley behind. You're originally from Germany. You're, you're the first European, by the way, on this show. So congrats on that. Um, what made you decide to move to the US and become a, an SEO expert? Yeah, you know, it's, it was deeply rooted in my childhood. Um, I have a dual citizenship. My father is American and I grew up visiting California on a regular basis that left an imprint on me as a kid, right? California is fantastic. You have sun, you have beaches, you have Disneyland, you know, it's sugar everywhere. So as a kid, it's, a, it's an amazing experience. And also as an adult, don't get me wrong, but it stuck with me. And as I grew older, I kept that wish of one day wanting to live in California. When I had established myself in Germany in the SEO scene uh, within a couple of years, um, or after a couple of years, I got the chance to come over to the Silicon Valley with a German startup called Searchmetrics. They're, they've been out there for, gosh, I think by now it's like almost 20 years. Um, and they are a, an SEO enterprise platform. And uh, they were looking for someone to build a professional services team in the San Francisco Bay Area. And uh, due to my double, dual citizenship, I was, I was lucky to be sent over. And that's how it all came together. And you jumped right on that opportunity. Yeah, yeah. It was a, you know, it's it's funny how these things develop. You know, it was not, it wasn't a situation where I was trying everything to get over to the U.S. I always wanted to, but I, I'm also that type of um, person who hedges their bets, right? And I always wanted to make sure that I have a job when I come over to the Silicon Valley or to to any anywhere in California, you know. Uh, and then this opportunity just fell in my lap by accident, but then I also moved very, very quickly. You know, um, I, I remember I got to know Marcus Tober, the CEO and founder of search metrics and still a good friend and mentor to these days. Um, and, uh, I, I learned from him that they were looking for someone in, this, in the San Francisco Bay area. I told him that I was interested and that I had a dual citizenship. And within a week I, I was, uh, in an interview with him, um, and then, within another week, I decided to move out of the country and, and like store all my furniture in a warehouse and make this big change to my life. That was within two weeks, right? 
Um, but that's how it often goes, you know, like you, these things fall into your lap and then it's, it's on you whether you want to act on them or not. Um, but to be fair, again, it was a, it was a very calculated bet. I knew that I would have an income. I knew that if ever, anything failed, my parents would support me and I could just come back to Germany. Right. And, and so it was, I always had a safety net under me and that allowed me to just move fast and make a bold decision. That's awesome. Like sometimes you just have to go for your dream and uh, really chase it. And that's what you did. Um, and looking at the companies that you worked with uh, in the years that followed, it was a, a very good bet of yours. Um, and um, yeah, you've become one of the leaders in SEO for tech company uh, comp companies, excuse me. Um, when did you know that you were going to become like this expert in SEO? Uh, was this something that um, grew to you as a child or something that you grew into during your career? That is a very good question, Tangi. I did a lot of reflection on that and I realized that it is in part rooted in my personality. I, I like to go deep on things, follow my curiosity and research a lot, learn a lot, write down a lot, you know, like really go deep on things. And on the other hand, I, I am very ambitious, you know, goals and, and hitting goals is very important to me. Um, and certainly part of my personality, but the actual craft came to light when I was playing lots of computer games. You know, that was kind of my entry to SEO. I was, I must have, I've been playing computer games since I was a, a young child, but I think when I was around 16, broadband internet became available in the, in, in Germany, you know, until then you had to pay by the minute. And I still remember the, the big invoices my father had to pay because my brother and I were paying StarCraft online and, and for hours and you had to pay by the minute. So <laughs> sorry, dad, at this point, but uh, <laughs> that, that was kind of my entry point. And uh, it, it was because uh, we, we, at some point I, I played some tournaments with, uh, with some friends online and Counter-Strike, StarCraft, Diablo, Warcraft. And uh, you needed to have a website to register for a tournament. And I was the guy to figure out how to build a website. I taught myself Scrappy, HTML, CSS, and Photoshop, and then build websites. And at some point, I asked myself, where are all these people coming from? I remember I installed some web analytics tool. I wasn't sure if it's Google Analytics or something else, but I saw there's something that is called organic traffic. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And then I followed the rabbit hole and then one thing led to another. Keep in mind at this point, SEO was this black magic hacky type of stuff that lived in forums and was very spammy, but it was also very intriguing to me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting that you mentioned that uh, because when people talk about SEO, a lot of people still feel that SEO is some type of black hat tactic or it has uh, this, this aura of mystery uh, revolving around it. Um, there's, there's this, um, yeah, this balance between tactics and strategy that you always have to uh, maintain. Um, what, is, what is your take on that? Very bullish on strategy. Very, very bullish. And the reason I said I've been in this for over 10 years now, and I've seen the tactics come and go, but the strategies always stay the same. So it is interesting that you call it a kind of a black magic or a black box because SEO still is that. But it is not that hacky, black-heady, shady type of stuff anymore. It's just simply that we face a very complex, very complex, very in-depth and fluid algorithm. It is SEO is not the cookie cutter thing that it used to be maybe five, six years ago. 
Nowadays, we have an idea of what levers exist in SEO, but they vary from site to site, from vertical to vertical, and from keyword to keyword, because Google has just gotten that good in understanding the nuances that people want when using a site in the finance space compared to a recipe site. Very different space, very different things you have to pay attention to. And that's where strategies is absolutely crucial because otherwise you just fire tactics at random and hope that something sticks. And that's just not a very sustainable way to go about it. Yeah, it's interesting that you say that because um, especially with the Google algorithm um, evolving and evolving and becoming at a point where yeah, you just cannot predict what's going to work or which tactic has a direct impact um, as it has before. Um, it's, it's really nice to see that it's constantly evolving. Um, do you, have you have, have you ever, sorry, experienced it yourself that you worked on a project and that you implemented a tactic and then all of a sudden, uh, it stopped working or, uh, it didn't work as expected all the time, all the time. The, the approach to SEO that I, that I used at daily motion or even at Lasten is very different compared to the approach I use today. Uh, in part because, again, these sites play in different verticals. They have different topical focus, but also because the, the tactics change. And, and it's, it's, I started to think about that a lot in 2021, and I think I finally am able to explicitly say or, or, or give a name to this thought. And I think that SEO has changed from this discipline where you have a blueprint of how things should be and then you, you, come, you try to come as close to that blueprint as possible to a discipline where everything is on the line and you have to test basically everything. The caveat is that we, there are certain things that still work pretty well. Backlinks, um, content, and title optimization, those things will definitely have some sort of impact. I know that with 99% certainty. But then again, content is this vast field. What does it mean? Do I talking about net new content, content updates? Are we talking about content depth, entity optimization? There are all these technical nuances to it. But we know that there is something there, right? So we have a rough map of what works, but we still need to, to adopt or embrace a bottoms-up mindset where we basically have to test everything. And that means that SEO has become a growth discipline, right? And growth or growth marketing, you test and then you iterate and you learn and you, you scale. And SEO is exactly that. And that's also, by the way, why I'm happy to, to be in the growth org at Shopify uh, because we live and breathe that mindset. Yeah, it's nice because at your, on your website, you also say that you work at the intersection of SEO and growth. And I think that it kind of captures that sentiment really, really well. Um, now, the, the testing aspect, um, it's something that we as a startup uh, embrace a lot. Uh, we're constantly testing, trying to improve the, the product, but also for, for organic growth. Um, and I really love the way that you say content updates. Uh, updates. It's something that I want to come back uh, to later. Um, but diving a little bit deeper into the Google algorithm, um, it has become complex in a way that it's almost more psychology than um, tactics or strategy. It's like you have to understand your customer very well. And then when, when you hit the, uh, the right spot, then you will launch yourself in, uh, in Google. 
Yeah, you, you hit it on the head there, Tangi. The, the algorithm has become so complex and powerful that for many years, Google decided against using machine learning because they were scared that they would create a monster that they cannot control, meaning that the algorithm would make decisions that they cannot understand themselves. And that is something that we can piece together by statements from, from Google over the years. There have been a couple of documentations recently and interviews. So it's not, not just an assumption from the outside. It's something that we, uh, we know from the inside. And uh, however, Google has started to use a lot more machine learning. And I think they have, this is an assumption for me, I, I think they have some guardrails in place that prevent the algorithm from making decisions that they cannot understand. But they, according to to material from Google and to their statements, what we can piece together is that they are at a point where they can describe the outcome that they want and the algorithm will tweak the input signals or its understanding and the weighting of these signals so that this outcome occurs. That's why we see a lot of fluctuation um, of organic traffic and rankings of sites over the years because the algorithm is constantly tweaking back and forth, back and forth. There were uh, two very significant uh, algorithm updates in 2020. One was in May, one was in December. And in some cases, the December algorithm update reversed a lot of the things that the May algorithm update did, right? And as a site owner, you see a traffic up and going up and down and you think, what the hell is going on? Does Google even know what they want? And the answer is kind of. The answer is kind of because... The, the engineers at Google, the, the algorithm engineers, which, by the way, are very shielded away from the rest of the organization, um, they think much more about the outcome that they want, and the algorithm is so powerful that it can tweak everything else so that this outcome comes to light, and then, then they reevaluate. Is that actually what we wanted? And that is incredibly powerful. And what that means for us as content marketers or SEOs or even webmasters is that there is a certain, there's an uncertainty in organic traffic, right? We have to understand that there's a certain volatility over the years and that we just can't think in these hard factors, right? We have to, we have to embrace that anything could be a ranking signal. And that, that comes to a meta level that makes it very hard to understand. And what I'm saying by that is the idea of EAT, expertise, authoritativeness and trustworthiness. This is a concept that Google has put out there that Google uses in their quality rater guidelines. It's a very meta concept, right? There's no such thing as an EAT algorithm. And that's something that Google has, has repeatedly uh, said and stated publicly. But instead, it's this meta concept of, a, it's basically a summary of all the things that Google wants to see in the search results. And that makes it so, that, that's why SEO is so complex these days. Mm -hmm. Well, that's that's very interesting, and especially with that uncertainty, that's something that we also want to try to answer with our with our uh, application. We um, we have this editor, and then we have this SEO score, and we want to encourage people to write content for other people for their target audience, but also optimize it for for SEO um, because, yeah unless your content is really good and it goes viral, there's a lot of uncertainty right there. And especially um, with, with the guidelines or with the, the way that Google shields uh, its algorithm from, uh, from the broader public, um, it's very difficult to, to predict. Um, but but um, talking about those new technologies, because you mentioned that um, Google has been wary about uh, introducing machine learning. Um, 
how do you think that SEO will evolve with new technology? Like you have voice coming up, you have artificial intelligence. A lot of companies are starting with machine learning. Um, which impact will it have on SEO and how do you see that evolve through yeah, the upcoming decade, let's say? So there are a couple of things to unpack. First, I'm very bearish on voice. I'm not very, uh, I don't think that voice is what a lot of people describe it to be. I think at least not yet, maybe in the next <laughs> five to 10 years, but I don't think we're close to a point at which people use a Google Home or an Amazon Alexa like they use Google today. I think it's very, very specific requests and queries that people try to convey to these smart devices, but it's not yet this, uh, kind of, hey, Google, explain kind of explain the Second World War to me and, 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 mm -hmm. and Google is able to understand all these implied complex concepts. There will be an application in place for voice. I think that it gets better, but it's, it's just not there. And I, I honestly, my SEO strategy, I don't, I don't even care about voice at all, not even a single bit. Um, maybe that's also because in the area that I focus on, but it's not there. Yet. Um, however, when it comes to there are two other parts that are really interesting, right? The one is Google's use of machine learning, and they are the number one driving force in natural language understanding and processing. So I feel very confident to project that Google will get much, much better at understanding the quality of content. They're already really good. I think they will get to a, a very scary type of level. And there is one thing that they announced, which is passage ranking, where they, I think, exactly that, that will come into play where today they still operate on a machine, uh, sorry, on a page level and say, Hey, we understand that this article is about those, this, these different types of topics. Right. And that's why we can rank it for um, those keywords. However, the next level will probably look like something where they understand, okay, the content quality of that article is not so good, but there's one paragraph, which is exceptional. And so let's rank that paragraph for related for keywords that it's relevant for and then the overall article might not rank that well, right? So then we'll come down to the pa paragraph level or passage level, um, and that's gonna, be, gonna get very interesting. We don't know yet what that will look like, what the implications are, how big the impact is, but we know that Google gets much better at NLP and LLU. The other side of machine learning and new technology is the usage of content marketers and SEOs of technologies like GPT-3 or machine learning to create new content. And there, there we saw a lot of progress, especially last year when, when GPT-3 GPT um, was uh, kind of uh, published and we saw a couple of showcases. There are some really good tools out there that already um, write a little bit of copy based on very minimal input out there. They also have a lot of limitations still. We're not yet at the point where a, a technology can completely replace a writer, but we are at the point where technology can save writers time it will probably soon in the next one to three years get to a point where the, the very low level tasks of writing and even design can probably be replaced by machines. Recently, there was a, uh, a technology that was published. The name just escaped me, but it would basically paint your picture based on a couple of sentences you would input, like uh, draw me an uh, avocado in the snow or something crazy like that and would do that and with some really good outcomes and some very funny outcomes. So that becomes very tangible and it's going to be very interesting to see what that will mean for SEO, for content marketing and for writers as well. Um, however, I also don't think that 
you sh- like that that technology will quickly replace designers and writers completely. I think that it will take a lot of low-level boring tasks off of the hand, which is a win-win for all. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say it's it sounds like a win-win then. Um, and also, it's good that you mentioned the quality of content. Um, I think it's a very good way to to shift towards content marketing in this conversation. Um, and it's a good thing that content marketers don't have to um, <laughs> be scared to lose their job in the next uh, three to five years. So uh, that that's good. But um, what what I wanted to talk about in terms of content marketing, um, there is a lot of talk like content, it's a saturated market. There's a lot of blogging, there's a lot of video podcasts, everybody's doing it, um, especially, excuse me, especially in a B2B um, environment. Um, what's your take on this? Uh, do you feel that that there is some saturation or um, do you see a lot of opportunities? I think there is a certain degree of saturation. Um, so what's basically happening is that, first of all, the bar of high quality for content is steadily increasing, right? It gets higher every year, maybe every month. That means that you have to invest more money and or more people and resources into creating better and better content. It is, especially within regards to SEO, SEO is a zero-sum game, right? There are only so many search results, right? Like there's 10, usually 10 on the first page, sometimes more, sometimes less. Um, And there are only so many first spots, which is one for every keyword. So that means that it gets harder to compete, means it gets more expensive to compete, um, and that more companies will ask themselves if that is the right way to go. That varies by industry, right? In the marketing space, for example, at the super competitive uh, finance insurance space, super competitive, there might be other spaces that are not as competitive. And at the same time, you have new and more emerging platforms. YouTube is very established, but especially in the B2B space, I think there's still a lot of opportunity. YouTube is also not the exact same as a search engine. There is a, a lot more it's a lot less of a zero-sum game. And YouTube is very interesting because it is a hybrid between a social network and a search engine, meaning it is, is scored by engagement, right? By watch time, click-through rate. Um, and there is a search results page, but there are also these um, rabbit holes that, that people go down to where they watch one video and they're drawn into the topic and then they click on the watch next video. And that is not a zero-sum game, right? That is, that is the opportunity for great content. We also see a lot of movement on the, in the podcast space where it's easier to create podcasts, easier to edit podcasts, um, and uh, there's some interesting formats. So I think there are more opportunities in formats like videos and podcasts, but at the same time, you can combine these different channels and, and platforms and still bring people back to your site, which I strongly recommend, right? If you, if you built your audience on another platform, that's fine, but if you don't diversify, you are too much at the mercy of these platforms. And that's where I think a, a, um, a combined approach, at least as good as possible, has a lot of benefits um, and, and can bring a lot of competitive advantages. We see that a lot in the creator movement, which is why that movement is so interesting right now, where people build really good audiences and then bring them back to their own site, into their courses, into a subscription, and they are able to to diversify these audiences or, or spread them across several platforms. I think this is where the trend is going to, right? Brands will keep investing in content marketing and SEO because it's still, 
it still makes a lot of sense, but they have to invest more money in people. And at the same time, the bigger opportunities are on platforms like a YouTube podcasting. And now just recently clubhouse, very, very exciting and interesting um, uh, platform, but uh, also very detached from SEO, right? It's much more an audience engagement and audience building platform. Um, so marketers have to be creative if they want to build a bridge between that and SEO. Uh, but that's, that's how I, that, that's how I see this kind of, um, increasing challenge within content marketing and SEO. Mm -hmm. Well, that's interesting because you, um, mentioned in your, on your website, I think it was, uh, one of the predictions for 2021 that, um, a lot of companies will hire massive content teams. Um, so it, it kind of, uh, ties in with that view that, uh, companies will put out a lot of content. Um, companies will, yeah, go on to, to omni-channel marketing. Um, how's that at Shopify? Um, is is that also the the direction that you want to go with um, as part of the, as a growth team? The place that was coming from there is that we saw this collapse of the publisher industry in two thousand eight. Many journalists lost their job. It was pretty devastating, and at the same time. SEO and content marketing picked up in the, I would say, 2010s, 2012, somewhere in that direction, where more journalists saw an out. They saw a way to make money again, to pursue part of their craft. And so that led to a couple of interesting trends. And one of them is that, as I mentioned, content became more viable, more important for SEO and for companies in general. On the other hand, a lot more companies invested in content, obviously, and that drove the price further up, right? We talked about competition and, and how that's a, a, a big challenge. But now we're at a point where in the last couple of years, I would even say, where you pay for a really good article of, say, 2,500 to 4,000 words, like a really good, long, solid guide, probably pay over $1,000, maybe $2,000 if it's, if it's supposed to be really good. If you have some custom graphics in it, you might even bump it up to 2,500. So the idea of outsourcing is becoming less attractive and the idea of just hiring really good writers is becoming more attractive, right? If you, if you think about it, um, $2,000 um, a month, that's uh, in a year uh, 24,000, right? That's, that's almost half a salary. So you, you, you get the gist, right? It makes more sense to hire people than to outsource it. Also easier, you can develop talent and so on and so on. So that's why I came to the prediction that companies will hire larger content marketing teams. Uh, at G2, I had a, a staff of over 20 content marketing writers. Um, and um, at Shopify, we also have a huge, several huge teams of uh, writers, international and, and English speaking writers and so on. So it does make a lot more sense to hire writers, at least uh, at this point, and to uh, really develop them, to get them familiar with the process, uh, teach them SEO, all these good things, they adopt the tone of voice, the, the brand and all that kind of stuff. Um, and so we see that model more and more. Uh, a couple of really good examples are all the sites from um, Dot Dash and um, from um, Red Ventures. So uh, an example would be all the, um, the balance sites, the Spruce, Healthline is a fantastic example. They have a very big staff of writers, full-time writers who uh, create a lot of great content. And they have you know, an editorial manager as well. So it's almost like that over the last 10 years, we saw this shift from editorial teams at publishers to editorial teams at companies. And that's, that's where my prediction came from. Yeah, that's very interesting because um, 
We're also, um, you know that we are a content marketing platform. We help teams, we help agencies, but we're also moving into the space where we team up with content creators to add that extra service because um, a lot of companies are like, yeah, I don't have time to create content or um, they're just yeah, seeing a mountain of, of jobs to be done and they're really not looking forward to doing so. So I think that kind of um, links up to that prediction. Um, and that's something that we really want to actively help um, companies invest in, into. Um, speaking about that, if you have the content, you have to distribute it. Um, so omni-channel marketing, it has been thrown out a lot uh, lately. Um, but how do you get started? Um, I can imagine if you're a small startup that you have um, limited resources, limited time to spend on creating content, um, even when you are a B2B company. Um, how do you get started and how do you define the, the channels that are right for you and um, that you need to double down on? That's such a good question because we, we throw that, as you said, that, that buzzword omnichannel marketing out there a lot, but what does it actually mean? A simple definition is to simply run your marketing campaign across different channels. However, there are two fundamental um, um, distinctions that we have to keep in mind. The first one is that it does not mean to copy paste your strategy for run channel to every other one, right? It does not mean to write an article and then copy paste a passage to Twitter and another like record a little you know, uh, YouTube video from the transcript or something like that. And number two, you still want to tie these channels together. And so in a, in a nutshell, what you want to do is you want to choose one platform. I, I strongly suggest or recommend your own website where all of your strategy funnels together. And then you want to run a zero-based strategy on all the other marketing channels that you're on, meaning you completely from scratch think about what the best way is to go um, to, to market on Twitter, to market on YouTube, to market through podcasts, right? It's not a copy-paste strategy. It's, you have to start from scratch every time. Now, as a startup, you're obviously very limited in resources um, and uh, you have high pressure, you want to grow fast. And so the strategy that I have not seen working for startups is to say, oh, these are all the sexy things right now. Let's do that too. The strategies that I have seen working or the base better set the, the, the approach to marketing is where is our audience right now? Where do, what do they consume? What do they watch? Where do they talk? Where do they meet? And what do they have in common? And then start with the one channel that fulfills all this criteria and then think about what is a complementary channel to that. So what that could mean is to say, hey, there's a subreddit, right? That is super active that um, people use where I can find a lot of information. So the first step for me is to become part of that community, not even to, to promote my product much, but to really become part of the conversation and truly understand who the drivers of the conversation are and what they talk about. Then from there, that can be one platform, right? And as I become more part of the conversation, inevitably I will draw some attention to me, but it has to be very passive instead of active. If you're too active on platforms like Quora or Reddit, you'll just lose your credibility and trustworthiness and people will understand that you just, you're just there the market and they will just ignore and we will fail. But if you are part of the conversation and people check out your profile, they see you work for this company and they discover you passively, that works pretty well. So now... You're part of the conversation. Uh, you understand what people are talking about. Now you have to think, okay, think about what is a complementary format to that. 
And that is very much driven by the conversation itself. So if people keep referencing other people that they look up to or maybe certain companies or a shared interest, then you can think about how do I address that on a different channel? Can be a podcast where you interview people and discuss the exact problems that, that people discuss on Reddit. It can be a YouTube channel. It can be blog articles you write where you uh, cover that conversation. So that's how you develop into omnichannel marketing. You start with one platform that captures your audience. You think about a complementary one and then you expand from there. Because as a startup, your resources are very limited and you have to, you, you have to, to, to pick very carefully. And so the closer you are to your audience, that should be your first channel. And then you expand further away to make the complementary. Yeah, that's really nice um, because um, it's it's really interesting for us as well. That's that's the the road that we also take, um, and especially for yeah teams that are starting out with content marketing, there's a lot of valuable information just to listen to your customers and to know where they are and yeah join the conversation as well. Um, I wanted to touch upon the uh, the thing you said earlier about content up updates. Um, because, uh, I hear that a lot of people are like, well, they're treating their content like statically. Um, they don't see their content dynamically or, uh, evolving, um, over time. Um, what's your take on that? Um, what's the right percentage, um, of creating content and upgrading content, upgrading content? Um, how, how do you look at that? So content freshness exists on a spectrum. There are certain topics and types of content that are very short-lived and they have a very high demand for freshness, like news articles, right? Breaking news, that's at the very end of the spectrum. And on the other end are what we call evergreen content. Those are much closer to history than, uh, you know, to, uh, to news. But even history changes, right? Like we have historians, we have people who deal with that and, and, and start digging up new revelations about history. So not even evergreen content is something you can just park and forget forever. Every piece of content needs a certain amount of grooming and, and updates. And so this is something that, that I have seen work really well. If you keep your content fresh, you, uh, it, it works really well. Google rewards it and algorithm updates as well. And it's also nice for your audience, of course, right? Let's not, let's not forget that uh, at the end of the day, Google is just a means to an end. And, and we talk about users here, but Google's requirements for content freshness seems to have increased. That is something that I have observed over the last couple of algorithm updates, um, that outdated content gets pushed down the search results much, much faster and much, much more aggressively. So we as marketers have to develop systems and processes to groom our content and make sure that it stays fresh. And that is something that nobody really talks about, or at least it's not talked about enough, let's put it this way. Um, and it's, it's something where, you know, there's a lot more potential for, uh, for, for us to do a better job, also for better tools to be out there. And so um, it's not even as straightforward to say, to develop criteria for when content has to be updated, right? There are lagging indicators like, oh, traffic of a piece of content is going down, let me investigate, I figure out it's outdated. But what are the leading indicators? Very, very tricky, right? And that's what I'm saying. Like some sort of system has to be developed. I, I don't have the perfect answer to that. I have my systems, 
but uh, and they work well, but I don't think there's this one gold standard out there of how to do it. It's still done very manually where you rely on the, on the writer or the editor or content strategist to figure out when a piece of content is outdated. But um, I think that has become way more important, especially as we have so much more content out there. Yeah, maybe in a few years, we have a machine learning app that helps us to identify when content is getting cold and uh, needs to be updated as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I honestly, I thought about doing that. <laughs> I thought about <laughs> building something like that. Um, I, I just, it's just impossible with a with a full time job. That's a that's a full startup or like a micro SaaS business by itself. But yes, yeah. we need a tool that that uses machine learning to understand when a piece of content is outdated, sends notification to the writer. It's gonna come. I I I I put my my name on the line for that. Awesome. So yeah, probably someone who's listening or watching to this uh, show. We'll get a bright idea and start executing it. Um, really looking forward to that. Um, Kevin, before we end up this interview, um, if 20, let's, let's say that 2020 was an exceptional year, um, to say the least, um, and that 2021 hopefully has um, better, um, is, or will be better in history. Um, but if you have one advice for content marketers in 2021, um, what's the number one thing that you, that you say that people should double down on? Being exceptional. Um, that is, I, I see, and, uh, see, see it's, it's tricky, right? Because uh, tools like the skyscraper method still work decently well, and it relies on looking at the search results and what works right now and doing it better. But we also often forget to stand out. And I'm saying stand out from a brand perspective, from a content perspective, from an approach perspective. So the number one thing is to be unique and to be exceptional. And that means to ask yourself whether a piece of content or a written article could be a tool or could be a video or could be something else that's easier to consume and digest and something that's fresh. I think this idea of uh, freshness, not in the sense of content freshness, but in the sense of something new and exciting is becoming so much more important because there is so much more competition out there. So I would constantly think about how can I make this something that is memorable and that stands out. All right. Awesome. Um, so yeah, Kevin, thank you so much for being on the show with us. Um, before I say goodbye to you and to everybody who's watching, where can people connect with you? Um, where can they find out more about you, um, ask you questions, burning questions about SEO and content marketing? Yeah, uh, and by the way, thanks so much for preparing this so well. Uh, really enjoyed the conversation. Um, uh, you did a really good job and, and clearly did your homework. So, so thank you very much. People can find me on Twitter, um, Kevin underscore Indig, that's uh, I-N-D-I-G, um, or my website, kevin-indig.com. Uh, it looks ugly right now, but it's currently being redesigned. So I'm really looking forward to the relaunch in a couple of weeks. Um, but yeah, otherwise just Google Kevin Indic, you'll find all my profiles and just reach out to me. My Twitter DMS are open. Um, and, um, yeah, I'm super happy to get in touch. Awesome. Thank you, Kevin, so much for making time and for being on the show and for everybody who's watching. Thank you so much. Um, this was the Growth through content show, which is powered by story chief. And I hope to see you in the next episode. Goodbye.